John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, you speak of what, oh, sorry, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This morning I'm preaching on the first section of John chapter 3 as we continue that series we commenced recently. You might want to have that open up in front of you. The last time I preached on this passage was in late 1997. I remember it very well. It was actually my third Sunday as the minister of this church and I remember it because of what happened on the Saturday night before. Uh, I'd worked pretty hard on the sermon, I'd worked hard to understand the passage, uh, to uh, uh, try to understand what God is saying in this uh, section of scripture. I'd worked hard to uh, craft the sermon uh, in a way that, uh, to the best of my ability at least, would uh, communicate uh, what uh, God is saying. Uh, and I felt fairly okay uh, that the sermon was, uh, was ready, to, ready to go until the phone rang. And it was Saturday night. Uh, it was a lady whose elderly father was on his deathbed. 
And she said to me this, she said something like, Dad is not a religious person, but it's possible that he may not make it through to see tomorrow morning. And he has asked if he could speak to a minister, could you please come? Well, there are a few things that are more important than that. And uh, so I uh, got in the car and drove to their home. He had chosen to die at home. Uh, went into the man's bedroom. He was there lying in his bed. And he was quite conscious. Uh, his mental faculties were, were fine. Uh, he was able to think. He was able to talk. He was able to express to me what was going on in his mind and what was going on in his heart. And what was going on was that on the brink of death, he was terrified. Uh, he told me of some of the wrong things that he had done in his life, not much different to some of the wrong things that you and I would have done. But he knew that he was about to face God. And so he wanted to know, could I help him? Now, that's not a time to start talking about trivial matters, is it? Uh, what that man needed to hear was... He needed to hear the message of the Bible in a nutshell. And could there have been a better passage than the passage that was filling my mind and my heart, the passage that uh, 13 hours later I was to stand up at that pulpit there and proclaim to the congregation, could there be any better passage than John chapter 3, especially verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This man knew that he was not good enough to get into heaven. This man knew that if he were to be judged by God, which he was sure that he was about to be judged by God, and if he was to be judged by God on the basis of how good he'd been, then he was in deep trouble. Could I help? And so I shared with him John chapter 3, verse 16. And as we talked, as we spoke about God's love and what Jesus did on the cross and why Jesus died on the cross, he seemed to understand that Jesus had paid his debt, that uh, it wasn't necessary for him to be judged on the basis of his goodness, but that the debt had been paid. And he actually prayed for forgiveness from God. And during that conversation, it was quite obvious to me that uh, the fear that was in his face that we started the conversation with actually changed to a sense of trusting in Jesus and his wonderful relief that uh, you experienced when the burden of your sin is lifted from your shoulders. I conducted his funeral about a week or so later. Now, it doesn't always work that way because there are many people who go through their life right through until their death uh, in the belief that, uh, that somehow on the day of judgment that they will be considered to be good enough for God. Now, why is it that people think that way? Uh, I have met people who have said to me that I have tried hard to do good. Uh, some people say that I consider myself to be a bit above average 
or even just as good as the next person, or not too bad in any case. And I think I should be okay with God. I met a man who told me that it uh, wouldn't be fair for Jesus to pay for his sin, that it was only right that he should pay for his own sin. Now, most religions promote this idea. Uh, In fact, I dare say all religions except for one true faith that religions promote this idea that uh, you can get into heaven on the basis of how good you are or on the basis of performing certain rituals, certain religious ceremonies and so on. I had a conversation with a taxi driver in regards to this just recently. Uh, Now, I love talking to taxi drivers. Um, give me a chance to hop in a cab and I'll, I'll take it because a lot of these guys are really interesting to talk to. And they'll talk about any subject and uh, often they'll talk about spiritual matters. Uh, I know I shared with you an example of a taxi conversation I had uh, about six months ago in Sydney, but uh, this one is a different one. Uh, we were, uh, was when Andrew and I were in holiday, on holidays in Washington a couple of months ago and uh, we were driving into the, the city, past the waterfront. I remember that because it was the Watergate building uh, which stood out as being something memorable for me. And we're looking at the water and it was a beautiful day and I was sharing with the guy, I said it was a really lovely day. And we started to talk about God and the meaning of life. It turned out that this man was as eager as I was to talk to me about these things because he was a zealous Muslim, which meant that he believed that Jesus was not God and that Jesus did not die on the cross. We had a very warm conversation. I shared with him how uh, the death of Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh was actually great news because it means that sin has been paid for by the only person who's actually qualified to pay for sin, God himself, and that through that that there can be forgiveness and that's how you get to heaven. Well, he believed that every person will be judged by God on the basis of how good they have been on the basis of their merits. And as I stepped out of the cab, I turned to him and I said, if that is true, then I, for one, am in very deep trouble. I noticed a, uh, a, a thoughtful grin on his face uh, as we said goodbye. Hopefully he understood what I was saying. Now, friends, in John chapter 3... We are introduced to a man by the name of Nicodemus, if you care to open up at John chapter 3. And the interesting thing about Nicodemus is that if anyone was able to get entrance into the kingdom of God on the basis of being religious or on the basis of being moral, then Nicodemus would have to be a man. Have a look at what uh, John tells us about Nicodemus in verses 1 and 2. Let me read that for you. He says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, 
For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which meant that he was about as religious as you could get. Uh, As a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a man who had studied the scriptures, who understood the law of God and who would have been absolutely meticulous in observing the law of God. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which means that he was a Pharisee of some prominence. He was a citizen of some prominence. He was a respected man of position. And so here was a man whose religious and moral credentials were impeccable. And unlike many of the other religious leaders of the time, he was actually genuinely interested to learn more about Jesus. And so what we see here is that Nicodemus sought after a conversation with Jesus. And he went to Jesus at night. Now, we're not told why in particular he went at night. Uh, We could speculate perhaps it was because uh, Nicodemus was a man acknowledging the position that he held, didn't want to be seen by too many people going to Jesus uh, because he didn't want to be seen as associating himself with Jesus until he had found out more about Jesus, uh, until he had learnt what Jesus had to say. So in that sense, he might have been very, very wise and very responsible. Or it might be that uh, he went to Jesus at night because he realised that, uh, that by doing so that he could actually have a, a longer and a more meaningful conversation with Jesus. And we see that as he came to Jesus, he, he did so very humbly and very respectfully. Uh, notice what, what he calls Jesus. He, he, he calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. Now, think about that. Here is Nicodemus, a man who would have spent many years being schooled in, in, the, uh, in the scriptures. Uh, here is Nicodemus, the man of official position and title. And he's going to Jesus, who is the unschooled person without credentials. And he's speaking to him as teacher to teacher, rabbi to rabbi. That is humble. It seems that Nicodemus is genuine in his inquiry. So what does Jesus do? How does, do, does Jesus carry on with pleasant conversation? You know, how are you going, Nicodemus? How's the wife? How's the kids? Uh, what are the other Pharisees saying about, you know, what I did the other day when I cleared the temple out? Uh, you know, no, Jesus, Nicodemus has come to Jesus to find out the truth about God. And so Jesus plunges immediately into the very heart of the spiritual issue. Have a look at verse 3. In verse 3, he straight away says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. Now, in the original, that's truly, truly, I say to you. If you like the old version, it's verily, verily, I say to you. He's emphasising the truthfulness of what he's about to say, saying to Nicodemus, you need to give me your full attention. And then in one sentence, he sweeps aside everything that Nicodemus stood for. 
He says to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, have you noticed how some people seem to think that there are two varieties of Christians? There's the kind of born-again variety of Christian. And I suppose that you'd have to say then there's the non-born-again kind of variety of Christian by, you know, uh, necessary implication. Well, Jesus says in verse 3 and also in verse 5 that there's only one variety of Christian, that there is only one type of person who can see and can enter into the kingdom of God, and that is the born-again Christian, the born-again person, rather. So what does it mean to be born again? I guess there's a bit of misunderstanding about uh, what that means. Sometimes people just think it's a kind of an overly enthusiastic Christian. Uh, and Nicodemus himself is, is puzzled. Uh, in verse 4 he says, hang on Jesus. Uh, it is impossible for somebody to go back into the mother's womb and to be born again. And you think to yourself, well, Nicodemus, that's kind of stating the obvious, isn't it? Of course that's impossible. I wonder if that's what Nicodemus is really thinking about. Or maybe, perhaps Nicodemus is thinking, yeah, it would be great to be born again. It would be great to have a fresh start, to have a, a second crack at life, to, to be able to start again, to, to do things differently, to not make those same mistakes, to, to start again, but... That's impossible. The term to be born again can also equally be translated as to be born from above. And I suggest that uh, John in his gospel often has double meanings where both are true. And Jesus explains that in verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born, and you see this, of water and of spirit. Now, there are some people who reckon that uh, this, is, this verse justifies the idea that uh, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to go and get yourself baptised. Uh, but that's the exact opposite to what Jesus is actually saying. Uh, Nicodemus, the, the Pharisee, uh, was a man of, of religious rules and regulations and ceremonies and legalistic observances. He was an old covenant man. And Israel had failed dismally to obey the old covenant, uh, just like you and me. Uh, we fail to obey God's law. Uh, there's not one of us who <laughs> loves God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Not one of us. I mean, we can fool ourselves and we can deny that. Uh, that that's why many people avoid Jesus. Uh, I wonder if you've noticed that uh, there's a lot of people out there that seem to say that they're searching after ultimate reality and uh, they'll search in terms of Eastern mysticism. Uh, they'll search in terms of other kinds of spiritual realities. But you talk to them about Jesus and they go, oh, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. In verses 9 to 20, 19 to 20, people avoid Jesus. 
because Jesus is the light who exposes our sin. And people don't want to have their sin exposed. People prefer to live in the darkness. And so they avoid Jesus. That's one way you can handle your sin. Or alternatively, like the the elderly man that I spoke to on his deathbed, you can face up to the reality of your sin. The Old Testament uh, actually speaks pretty clearly about this. I wonder if you might uh, put a bookmark in uh, John chapter 3 and come with me just briefly back to Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, which I think is a uh, prophecy that... uh, is fulfilled in what Jesus is saying. Uh, You'll find Ezekiel 36 on page 614. And I'm going to pick it up at uh, verse 24. Uh, Israel, as usual, had uh, been in rebellion against God. And God, through Ezekiel, speaks to them a word of hope. He says to them in verse 24... I will take you out of the nations because they're in exile. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. That's Canaan. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness and so on. Do you see that? Now it's packed with Old Testament concepts, of course, of the physical land of of Canaan and uh, so on, which we know is fulfilled in the heavenly reality. But the bottom line is this. Uh, Israel had failed to obey God, and so Ezekiel prophesies a time in the future when God would do something radically new. Now, what is this new thing? First of all, He will sprinkle water upon men and women to wash away sin. Now think about this. I want you to think about your own life. Um, Let's say, make it easy, over the last month. Make it even easier, over the last week. I want you to think about the the times when you have thought, uh, spoken or acted in any way that uh, is dishonouring to God. Is that too hard to think about? For me it is. You know that man I spoke to on his deathbed, he had his whole life was flashing before him. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great uh, if God was to throw a bucket of water over the record of your sin to wash it all away so that you've got a clean sheet of paper a fresh start, a new beginning in your relationship with God. That's what we all need, isn't it? Secondly, Ezekiel promised that God would place his spirit in the hearts of men and women. 
so that they would love him and obey him, not out of some kind of religious observances, not so that they would love him in order to get a place into heaven, but because they would love him and obey him simply because they love him. Imagine that. Not only is the past washed clean away, however you've lived your life, however good or however evil you've been, no matter what you've done, that the past is washed clean away. And then God gives you, he also gives you a heart transplant so that you can be a new person, a changed person. How does it sound to you? Have you experienced that? I know that many of you have. Well, how does God do it? Well, let's cut to the chase here and get straight to John chapter 3, verse 16, the key verse. God so loved the world. You know, there's uh, very few words in the Bible that are more famous than those words. God so loved the world. And we can sometimes be so familiar with those words that uh, we can miss some of the key and important concepts. Think about it. Of those words, God so loved the world, what are the important words in that uh, phrase? What do you think is important? Well, the word God's important, isn't it? Uh, the word loved, yep, that's very important. What's another important word? The word world. Yeah. What about the word so? Have you thought about that? How do you know, how do we know what true love is? How do we know the difference between true love and artificial love? It's when it's costly, isn't it? Uh, it's when to love someone is so costly that it actually hurts you. Well, how much did God love us? He loved us so much. He loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. That is how much he loved us. He loved us so much. The word so is incredibly important because it speaks of the magnitude of God's love for us. You know, there are some people who... Uh, uh, I heard about a scientist, an astronomer, who had, uh, through his studies of astronomy, had come to believe in the existence of God as creator of the universe. And yet he said that Christians are so arrogant because they believe that a, the one who created the universe actually loves them. How arrogant is that? I mean, as if the Bible's not aware of that. Psalm 8, for example. No, no. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, in verse 14, Jesus reminds Nicodemus that there was an Old Testament example of what was going to happen through the son. Uh, you might have a look at verse 19 because in Numbers chapter 21, there was a situation where uh, Israel had uh, departed from Egypt and they were in the desert uh, heading towards the promised land and they started to whinge 
Oh, why, God, did you bring us out here into the desert? You know, it was really good back in Egypt. We had good food, we had good water, you know. what? And God decided to punish them for that lack of gratitude. He sent a plague of snakes into their camp, venomous snakes. Then they begged for mercy and God told them to, to manufacture a bronze replica of the very thing which was the instrument of the judgment against them, that is the serpent, to make a replica of that serpent out of bronze and to stick it on a pole and to plant that pole firmly in the ground and to raise that pole up high and that everyone who'd been afflicted by the snakes who looked at that pole would be forgiven, would be healed by God. And Jesus says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Sometime later, Jesus was lifted up on a pole. They nailed him to a pole. They stuck it in the ground. They elevated it up high. And as he died on that crucifix, he took the punishment for our sin upon himself. That the penalty for our rebellion and our ignoring God was poured out on Jesus. How does God wash away our sin? By paying for our guilt through the death of his only son. How much does God love us? So much that he did that. Friends, this is truly the biggest issue in life. I don't know what other issues are going on in your life at the moment. This is the big one. This is the big one. Because it's about whether you will live your life at peace with God, your creator, now and for all of eternity, forever. And eternal life is not, is not only about the duration, the infinite duration of life lived with God. It's about the quality of life. Living as you have been intended to live, as you've been created to live, in intimate relationship with the one who made the whole universe. There's nothing more important than this. It's about where you'll spend eternity. Will you spend eternity in heaven or will you spend eternity in hell, cut off from God, cut off from every good thing forever? There's no more important issue than this. And the time to sort it out, this is not the sort of thing that you say, well, I'll think about that, I'll make a commitment about that later, you know, let me finish my high school, you know, let me finish university, let me get the renovations done on the house and I'll put some... No, 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 no you don't want to do that. Um, don't wait until your deathbed. Don't wait until your deathbed. Most of the time, 99% of the time that I'm called out to someone's deathbed as a minister... Uh, when I get there, they're, they're in a coma. They're unconscious. I don't know if they can hear what I'm saying or not. A lot of the time, they've already died. And the nurse will usher, tell me, there's the room, go in there, there's the body, just do your thing. Well, it's too late 
at that point, isn't it? The time to sort this issue out is now. So the question then is, well, how do you get yourself born again? And let me say, it's not something that you go and get yourself get done to you. Uh, you don't go and get yourself born again uh, because to be born again means to have your sins washed away. Uh, to be born again is to have a new and changed heart and that's actually God's work. That is what God does. But what you need to do is to believe. Not just in your head. Anybody can believe something in their head, but to believe in your heart, for your beliefs to shape your life, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins and that his death is complete. He's paid for all of your guilt. Verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus puts it bluntly. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That is great news, isn't it? No condemnation I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but... And but's a very important word in the Bible. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, to not believe in Jesus can mean various things. Uh, as I've said, you can say, in your, you know, I believe in Jesus. Well, the, the, the demons believe in Jesus. That, that's not what the Bible's talking about here. It's a belief that translates through in terms of your whole life commitment. Um, but to not believe in Jesus, you can say I believe in Jesus, but you can trust in something else instead. Well, you might as well not believe in Jesus. Now, what are some of the things that we can be tempted to trust in as kind of the route to get in or the ticket into heaven? Uh, I've already mentioned our own goodness. Well, that's a disaster, isn't it? Uh, because none of us are good enough. Um, some, sometimes a person may trust that because they belong to a certain church, uh, even say this church, that uh, that means that they're obviously a Christian and that they're going to heaven. Um, it's fascinating, a number of years ago, some of us were doing some door knocking in the area and uh, a couple of our people knocked on someone's door and this guy answered the door and they said, hi, you know, we're so-and-so, we're from the local Presbyterian church. The guy said, oh, you don't need to worry about me, I'm Presbyterian. <laughs> and they go, oh, but... And he said, and... Don't worry, I've left some money for you in my will. <laughs> right, we haven't received this yet, but... <laughs> right, you know, what's he trusting in? Uh, alternatively, there, there are people who would say that uh, I'm getting into heaven because I'm a Presbyterian because my name is on the church membership roll. It's fascinating how some people who show no commitment to Christ, no commitment to his church, but they're on the membership role, and you talk about taking them off the membership role, and they go, ah, oh, 
You can't do that to me. Or I, I, I come to church four times a year. That's how often we have communion, four times a year. Church is full on communion Sundays. Or, and I think this is an issue for um, some of our young people, uh, you can trust that you're going to heaven because you're actually enrolled in a Christian school or a school that's owned by a church. That, uh, you know, you've been to um, uh, religious studies classes or Christian studies classes. Uh, You've been through the whole kind of confirmation thing and so on. And so, you know, you're in. You're obviously a Christian. Or maybe this is the case. You think or hope that you've got the ticket to heaven because the person you you are married to... Uh, is a committed Christian, is a Christian. Uh, Your husband is a Christian or your wife is a Christian and you kind of tag along with them to to church things and you engage in the social life of the church and so on, but it's the other person who's got the faith, not you. And you think that somehow that's going to get you in. Uh, Or you might, if you're a child, you might actually think that it's because your parents are Christians, that you've been brought up in a Christian household and therefore uh, you're going to go to heaven. Well, Jesus, by saying that you must be born again, actually sweeps away all of that. Sweeps away all of that. Uh, The other option, of course, is you might think that you're a Christian because you're a senior person and your children are Christians. Right? Jesus sweeps away all of that. You actually need to trust in Jesus yourself. Uh, you need to trust that he paid for your sins and that ought to impact your whole life. And guess what? When you do that, it is great. The burden of your sin is lifted from your shoulders. You can have that fresh start You can have that second crack at life. You can enter into a new relationship with your creator that lasts forever. It is the best, the most joyful thing that you could possibly do. Now, we don't know much more about this man Nicodemus. We do know that after Jesus' death, that uh, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, Uh, was responsible for caring, took responsibility for caring for the body of Jesus after he was brought down from the cross. Nicodemus uh, brought along uh, a significant quantity of spices, of myrrh and aloes, and together with Joseph of Arimathea, they wrapped the body of Jesus up uh, in the way that was appropriate to do so. And I guess we see in that at least a strong hint that Nicodemus came to love, to treasure Jesus. But we also know that Jesus challenged Nicodemus personally. You know, I've said that in verses 3 and verse 5 that uh, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in general terms by saying that unless 
a man is born again, he cannot see or cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But in verse 7, Jesus got very, very personal with Nicodemus. Have a look at verse 7. Because there he doesn't simply say that a man must be born again. In fact, he says, Nicodemus, what does he say? You must be born again. You personally, Nicodemus. And by the way, it's the plural there in the original. It means Nicodemus and all the people you represent. You, Nicodemus, religious leader, Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, respected and honoured citizen, you must be born again. And you know what that means? If Nicodemus, with his religious qualifications, with his position, with his integrity, if he needed to be born again, then so do you no matter who you are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the possibility of a fresh start. We thank you for the death of Jesus that uh, washes away sin. We thank you for the pouring out of your spirit uh, who changes our hearts. And we pray for each one of us here that we would uh, know and understand and truly believe in who Jesus is and what he's done for us and that not one of us would leave this building today without experiencing that new birth, that peace with you and eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.